This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 460 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jason Wolf. Now, Jason has an incredible history ranging from creating a database of items used to make bombs to help track down potential terrorists through to becoming an expert in edged weapons and training special forces, and then most recently working with the first responder community, helping promote the fast board. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it easier and easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Jason Wolf. Enjoy. Jason, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. And also, I want to say thank you to Miguel, who has connected me with a lot of great people. Um, where are we finding you on planet Earth today? Uh, I'm based in Philadelphia. Beautiful. Well, I like to start at the very beginning chronologically. So tell me where you were born and tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. 
<clears throat> yes, sure. I was born in uh, Jersey. Um, grew up in a couple of different uh, interesting areas. Uh, Camden, just outside. Uh, Pensacon, Maple Shade. Um, in the early years, my parents got divorced when I was young. And um, I lived with my mom and my stepfather out there. Uh, there was a um, pretty pretty rough home situation. You know, the divorce, I had two older sisters. Um, I was about eight at the time. And, you know, young kid, my, my sisters were my best friends and worst enemies, right? Um, but it was tough on us. Uh, the, the family was split very ferociously. And, you know, we were kind of left to deal with the splinters of that growing up. Um, there was a lot of uh, support between my sisters and I, which was awesome as I got older and um, was kind of finding my way. Um, my sister Kristen and I would, you know, get apartments together and whatnot. And, you know, she was super supportive of me growing up because um, I was off to my own at a pretty early age. Um, high school was really no better. I fought a lot. Um, I went to uh, Pensacon and then, uh, you know, early days, uh, there's a, a school in Camden called Woodrow Wilson. Um, and, you know, they're predominantly minority neighborhoods. Um, you know, I got, I ran home from school a lot, you know, got jumped and, um, you know, kind of dealt with uh, really what people today would call reverse racism. You know, I was, I was always the only white kid around. So when the cops showed up, I was the one they went for first. And, you know, when something cracked off and, you know, somebody was going to get robbed, it was usually me. Um, so basically decided that I didn't like living like that at a really early age and fought, I was pretty artistically talented. Um, and during all of that, um, you know, my kind of release was skateboarding, you know, so I had a little group of guys that we hung out. It was funny because, um, you know, we, as kids usually do, we all had pretty messed up backgrounds. None of us wanted to be home. Um, so we find solstice and making each other better and pushing each other and motivating each other. So it kind of became a metaphor for my life where my friends, uh, really, really keep, keep me honest, you know, um, kind of slow me down and say, Hey man, like, you know, relax a little bit, take a breath and, and, you know, let it pass. Uh, so I have a really tight network of people, uh, that are super close to me that I'm super fortunate for. Um, you know, Miguel's quickly become one of those. He and I have been going back and forth, you know, he's just such an amazing wealth of knowledge. Um, I appreciate that, you know, so that kind of set the stage in my life for, um, me bettering myself and really setting my own standard, not really following. I never, never really was interested in a nine to five. I've held, you know, corner office positions before and, uh, you know, made decent money, but there was no challenge to it. You know, I would, um, later on in life, I worked for a couple of different corporations and I learned their operations super fast, um, you know, two to three times uh, quicker than most of their people who had been there for years. So what I learned and wish I had known them was that, you know, that that kind of puts a target on your back. So that was it. You know, formative years were, you know, I did mediocre at best in school. I was smart. I just didn't like the format and the work. Um, I excelled at math and reading and writing. You know, I do all those things. Um, art. I had multiple art classes. I was big into graffiti as a kid, obviously, because, you know, where I grew up, uh, lots of trips to Atlantic City. Um, 
and and that's it. You know, it really my my formative years were kind of me figuring out how to push myself and and in what direction to do that. You know, I was I was surrounded by such negativity um, that something in me just sparked and turned me the opposite direction. You know, there was a lot of drug dealers in my neighborhood. You know, a lot of my buddies died at young ages or, you know, ended up in jail or worse. Um, and I just never wanted to be part of that. You know, I, I was kind of always driven to be better than everyone else or better than at least I thought I could be, you know? Yeah, what's interesting, first you use the word reverse racism and people, that seems to be a buzzword now, which basically is just racism. <laughs> it's okay. It is. I mean, it's not exclusively, you know, one way. And it's funny how it's framed that way. Because to me, like what we're seeing now with a lot of, you know, these these um, Asian people being targeted, it's the same thing. It's just, it's hate. And you can label it whatever you want, but ultimately it's just hate. It's it's individual accountability, really, to me, you know. And like I said, I, I grew up in, households where my my buddy's grandparents grew up during the civil rights so they they i mean literally would spit at me you know my buddy carlos's grandmother and grandfather couldn't stand me but we were friends and i showed up all the time and i was super respectful and eventually they accepted me you know but i never felt like i should be angry at them for that you know like i just it's just how they were you know it's how you know their life had shaped their opinion um, and I kind of took that as a challenge anytime that happened to me, you know? Yeah. No, I think that's just it. You, you're, on, you're on a mission, I think, a lot of times just to show, it doesn't matter what your skin color is, to show that you're one of the good people in the world, you know, and, and re restore faith in humanity. In my opinion, you know, the idea of racism is a cop-out. It means you don't really want to talk about, you know, the issues at hand. And and I, I think that it becomes such an easy button for people anymore. You know, I mean, I'm out, I'm out here in Philadelphia. I go to get gas and people call me Nazi, especially during the pandemic. I have a tattoo on my bicep of both of my grandfather's service record that, uh, book numbers. Uh, they both served in World War II. Uh, my dad's side, uh, nine of the 11 brothers in the Wolf family uh, were veterans in World War II. So I like to pull that out and I like to tell them I'm a Nazi, huh? Really? Because I, I am literally a descendant of Nazi slayers. So... You know, it's just ignorance. And, and I think it's a personal accountability thing, you know, and when you hold people personally accountable and you and you get eye to eye with them, you know, it sparks anger and frustration like a cornered animal, you know. So, like I said, racism, racism is easy, button. you know, you, you make someone accountable for their opinions or their positions and, you know, they take that as a personal attack. You know, I find honestly, James, you know, like I find a lot of times I'll genuinely inquire to people like they'll take a position i'll say well that's interesting you know what about this or what do you think and just because you question them you know they take a hostile attitude back you know and it's you know for me that's just a challenge you know we you know i want to play that game to the point where i i get to the end of you know where their logic is coming from because that's what i'm interested in you know everyone's emotional but you know if you're if you're if your chain of logic is flawed, if you're so set in your ways that you can't take in new information and better yourself, you know, you're really not anybody I'm interested in connecting with. Yeah, well, I think, and that's what I've seen, you know, the hundreds of people I got to interview now, it's been amazing and learning so many of their early lives and obviously the, the the opening questions are there for a reason you know sometimes they just flit over them that's great sometimes they spend an hour talking about their childhood but right. then you start seeing what shaped these people what shaped these people that became protectors what shaped some of these people that initially became prey 
I mean, excuse me, became predators, you know, and then and then had a comes Jesus moment. But, you know, that's where we really address a lot of these issues, you know, with education, with good parenting. And what what's interesting to me, you you found yourself with a different tribe because, you know, you had that kind of splintered family life, even though you were close with your sisters, the right. the skateboarders became your tribe the same way as um, my guest yesterday, his father was in a biker gang. A lot of them were Vietnam vets. Well, they were treated like shit when they came back from the war. So the bike gang became their tribe. So it was interesting seeing you're going to have a tribe and it can be a very positive one or it can be a very negative one. You can end up with a bunch of skateboarders that are good people that go out and do good things, or you can end up with a bunch of gangbangers that end up murdering each other in neighborhoods. Yeah. And it's really value and cultural based, you know, from where I come from, it's, you know, what, uh, what are you taught? You know, how many generations out are we from kids who had parents that didn't give a shit about them? You know, um, that's the thing, you know, like I remember my mom sitting down, you know, after my parents got divorced, I remember my mom sitting at the breakfast table with me every morning, just her and I for years, you know, and that was the time that we talked, you know, cause she worked multiple jobs and we never saw each other. I was, you know, I don't know if you remember, but I was a latchkey kid. Um, you know, so, you know, I had a very uh, interesting foundation and a pretty, you know, there wasn't a lot of uh, patting on the ass in our family. You know, it was a very non, I'm not going to say non-loving because my parents were, you know, awesome, uh, you know, to the degree they could have been. Um, but it was a very hostile environment. You know, um, if you did something, you know, I remember one time, um, <laughs> I, probably, I probably should say this, but my mom used to keep a thing of hair berets on the back of the toilet and I knocked them in and, you know, it was just hell and high water, literally where I had to dig them out of my own, you know, mess, uh, because I had knocked them in and cleaned them all <laughs> off. Like, that's child abuse nowadays. That was the norm. We got used to stuff like that. So we, we had very, we developed very thick skins, you know? Um, and I learned that everyone has the opportunity to make a good decision or a bad decision or a beneficial or a non-beneficial decision. And then all of those decisions start with you and move on rings out from you. You know, it's the ripple in the pond effect. So, you know, once you become conscious of how those decisions drive uh, your pond, you know, your ripples, um, you can start affecting things in a really positive manner or a really negative manner. It's really just the culture, the values and, you know, what what really drives that person. Yeah. You know, I was I was never driven by money. You know, I've I've been around billionaires. It's I'm not impressed by that lifestyle. It's, it doesn't interest me. I have a five year old daughter that can't wait to put her ballerina dress on for a recital. That to me is my billion dollars. I'm that's worth more than those people will ever have, you know, and, and I'm OK with that. And and that changes my uh, horizon, you know. Yeah, no, I agree completely. It's funny. You see that on social media sometimes, like, you know, a dude leaning on a Ferrari in front of a mansion, like, one day you could have this. I'm like, what if you don't want that? Like, literally, like you said, I mean, you nailed it. I, I couldn't care less. I have a house. I have a car. My car gets me from A to B without breaking down. My house's roof doesn't leak. I'm golden. Right, right, right. And it's, again, it's, I'm, I'm more of a, I'm more of a look at what you have and appreciate it kind of guy. You know, my wife and I were, were just joking around. She's we've been together forever. And uh, there was a time I lived in the street and in, in Philadelphia and there was a, a Cambodian place. 
And they did uh, like it was like a, almost like converted gas station. And there were some it was a Cambodian Muslim family. And it was literally a half a block from where I live. So they used to um, I worked two jobs at the time. They used to throw all their food out from the night before. So I would get up early and fish all the trash bags of food out of the dumpster so I could eat. I mean, that's literally, you know, what, what fed me for months. And, um, you know, these people were amazing. You know, they, they came to me and they were like, hey, stop eating out of the dumpster. You know, so now I don't eat out of dumpsters anymore. You know, I, I'm, I, can, I, have, a, I have the choice, uh, you know, to, to pick what I want to, you know, do in life to whatever degree that may be. Uh, but I used to have to depend on the hospitality and charity of others. And I never like to burden people like that. And it also makes me appreciate them more. And I, you know, I teach my son to help everyone, you know, but be smart while you do it. We're in Philadelphia. You know, people will act like they're in duress and, you know, try and rob you or victimize you. So, you know, we still do that and I still teach him that. But the environment has changed. Yeah, beautiful. Well, you you said the the um, owners of the the restaurant told you to stop digging a dumpster. Did they start giving you food directly then? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, awesome. So you got these Cambodian Muslims that are immigrants that are you know acting the way many Americans need to learn how to act. So that's a beautiful story in itself. And here's an interesting footnote to that story. Years later, there was a Baptist church across the street. Um, years later, the pastor of the Baptist Baptist church came in, had a problem with his coffee and threw a scalding hot cup of coffee in one of the 15 year old girls that worked their face. It was national news. It was all over the place. And I knew them. I know that family. You know, I also know that pastor. And it was a really hard press for me after what happened in my life and the training and the, you know, the opportunities I was able to be a part of to not go back there and beat that guy within an inch of his life. You know, what grown man throws a scolding cup of coffee in a 15-year-old girl's face? I don't care race, color, creed. That's just not right. That's not something that's okay or tolerable. And that leads us back to culture. You know, back in our days, the community would have beaten his ass, no matter who they were. You know, it's, it's what's allowable now. You know, I like to say to people, you know, I live in a neighborhood where there's not drug dealers on the corners because I won't allow that to happen. You know, I'll be out there standing next to you, armed to the teeth. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, that's not something that's, I want my children around. You know, it's not tolerable. I don't know if you guys have been tracking the news, but Philadelphia is going insane. I think we're at 110 or 20 murders so far. So, I mean, they're, they're killing more than a person a day out here. And look at some of the stories. They just had an indiscriminate firefight on Broad Street, running gunfight right down the sidewalk. I think seven people were shot, you know, and of course, the two idiots shooting at each other. They probably never shot a gun in their lives other than into a trash can in the backyard. You know, both of those guys got away scot-free. Yeah. Well, it's something I talk about as well. And I love I love these opening conversations because they always go all over the place. Yeah. But, you know, we what we've looked at this last year, you know, you look at the the violence, um, you know, just on our streets, you look at the violence against police officers, the the, you know, the small amount of violence from police to citizens that were mistakes, absolutely hands down. And then you reverse engineer back to the the root. And as responders listening to this, we have all seen the ripple effects of the quote unquote war on drugs. Sure. And to me personally, if the if addiction wasn't 
empowering the underworld. If addicts were actually put in the medical realm and we didn't have a demand for illegal drugs, i.e. getting rid of drug prohibition, I don't think you'd have people running around the streets murdering each other. You wouldn't have to worry about a drug dealer on your street because the drug addicts would be in the clinics and the addiction centers and the and the counseling centers and getting better the same way as the chest pain patients are getting better and the back injury patients are getting better, you know? So to me, all these things, they all are rooted in that fucking ridiculous law that was put in, in you know, talk about racism at the absolute stem of racism. You look at the base of that. And that we need to just stand up and say, for fuck's sake, enough is enough. It was alcohol prohibition was a fucking complete failure. This war on drugs has been a complete failure. Our prisons are swelling. Our children are dying in the streets. We yeah. have to stop this. Yeah, I think I think we're definitely over medicated. You know, I think I think that big pharma is such an amazing industry um, and profitable industry, or could be such an amazing industry. Um, that, you know, that's, that's absolutely an issue. You know, I, my injuries, my, my, I had a few car accidents, you know, I've, I've lived a pretty, uh, active life. So I've never had anything major, um, other than gunshot wounds. Um, but you know, no broken or habitual problems. Um, and then I got in two car accidents. Um, and I'll tell you, man, it amazed me how, how much narcotic fucking prescription excuse my language but man they they flooded me with it man and you i i started to fall into it you know uh the flexor all the muscle relaxers all that stuff and you know i had to dig down deep inside myself and drive myself every morning to not take that stuff and fortunately for me i have a really averse you know physical reaction to it when i take it and uh that helps me steer clear of it. But it also pushes me into very holistic, very odd realms, you know, um, which, uh, again, I think we're just way too over-medicated by industry, you know, just like we're too over-regulated by government, you know. And I think that, again, we kind of come back to that cultural and moral baseline where it's like, OK, you know, what's acceptable and what's not? Because we all, you know, I, I'm a, I was born in the 70s. I'm an 80s, 90s kid. You know, I remember having kids in our, and uh, I had a buddy, Bobby, that ate glue out of his desk. You know, I don't know if you guys remember those scented markers, but he would take glue and marker and he'd fill his thing up. And true story, every day, come and need a big chunk of glue. You know, there was kids that were hyperactive. You know, they didn't, they didn't medicate them back then. They talked to them. We had guidance counselors that actually gave a shit. You know, they'd come out and they'd get you involved. And, you know, one of the things that I had, because, you know, I was... <laughs> I was always running for my life when I was little in the neighborhoods I, I uh, lived in that one of my guidance counselors and an art teacher put me in track. And, uh, you know, I ended up being, you know, better than average at track. And, you know, oddly enough, my son now runs cross country and loves it. So, you know, those kind of foundations, I think, are kind of glossed over. You know, wrestling is another one. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, we used to joke around, say we're going to do man camp for kids. Well, woe man is part of man as well, you know, so we're all inclusive, you know, cooking and, you know, non-traditional male roles. Like, you know, I, I, that's, you know, we can't even say men's and women's anymore. You know, it's it, when, when you, when we get to that level where there's no common verbiage, you know, I, we really have problems because no one's talking about the same thing. You know, our standard and basis of core values and, and morals are one. And this other group, because of whatever their difference is, uh, gets to claim victimhood 
um, you know, that's that's a big part of it. You know, if you know, jumping forward a little bit, um, one of the one of the most impactful talks I've ever heard on was victimhood. And we could talk about that if you want. But uh, it was from a, a good friend of mine, Tom Kyer. And one of his one of the things he used to say is there's no victims. There are only volunteers. Right. Everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. You know, you can train, you cannot train, you know, you can look at the ugly things in life. You cannot, you know, you can prepare, or, you know, you can leave things up to the gods. You know, it's all based on priorities and what's important to people, in my opinion. But once you call someone a victim, you know, you, you steal their power, you take all of their responsibility away. And that's, that's what responsibility and accountability is. It's, it's power. It's your power to influence, you know? So I think that, that the idea of being a victim has been exalted and we've become a nation that's, that rewards people for failure. You know, um, I grew up again, like I said, you know, pretty poor. And I remember the old food stamps that were like, they look like old monopoly money. They were like pastel colors. And you know, when, when we had to use those, we were embarrassed, you know, like you, you put your head down, you know, you you put your hood up and you walk <laughs> up, you put your bread and you hope nobody saw you because you knew the next day in school, everybody was going to be like, got that monopoly money, you know, like nowadays that's, you know, it's, there's no shame in that anymore, you know, and shame is a great motivator. People just don't like to admit that because it's, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable experience, you know, and I've lived in that, that uncomfortable realm. Well, you said with victimhood, it's, it's interesting when you talk about it, it takes the power away. It's I think it's what we've seen in this last year. Oh, is, totally. you know, Oh, you're gonna be a victim, so just yep. you know, just don't don't do anything that. And instead of, and I've talked about this a lot, instead of saying, "Well, hey, I want you to assume that you're gonna get this virus, so we're gonna empower you. This is we're gonna start educating you. These these are the kind of foods that are gonna help. This is what sleep does. You know, Absolutely. this is what daylight does. Vitamin D is good for you." You know, so, but they, they, they literally took away the power to act. So I found that, you know, the, the way that the UK and the US here chose to, to frame this last year has caused a huge amount of problems because you took the autonomy, autonomy, excuse me, away from a lot of individuals. The most, you know, the most motivated did what they did anyway. But there's a lot that are looking for guidance that aren't well versed in nutrition and, and fitness that needed some leadership. And we did the complete opposite and we, we told them all the wrong things and gave them this impression that you are potentially going to be a victim of COVID. But if you hide, then you can you can escape it, which is just and you think about it, any other disease, that's the most ridiculous thing possible. But that's how it was framed. Completely. And, you know, I, I think that the tragedy in it, in my eyes, is, you know, my 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 children's grandparents, you know, they're scared to death. You know, they, at, at one point during this, they they were afraid to hug their grandchildren. You know, like we saw people putting plastic, you know, hug screens indoors and stuff, um, you know, and it really, you know, dehumanizes people. And, and, you know, whether you believe that's the goal or not, or whether you believe in the bigger conspiracy theories, um, you know, reality is a conspiracy theory enough. I mean, this it, I, I know medical professionals and, you know, the things that they were saying were completely contrary to logic and common sense. 
And when you asked them about that again, they became very hostile and, oh, well, you must be an expert. And, you know, well, no, I'm not. That's why I'm asking, aren't you? You know, and it's when you can't have a conversation. And like you said, when the education stops, you know, the flow of information is really what what we live in now. Uh, you know, that's that's the new era and the new age. You know, you're not anymore a physical commodity. You're now this production of content. And, you know, that content is everything down to your date of birth and your social security number, you know? So until we start looking at the people that we let lead us, you know, and it comes down to our democracy, we vote people in and, you know, it's the majority rule. So uh, the, you know, the, the issue that you have is, you know, when the majority has, um, you know, uh, agenda or a, or a motive that, provide something other than education, you know, and we can all, we can all be honest with it. All our kids went to school and, you know, we all saw what common core did. Um, you know, it's just not a good idea. And the fact that these people that are leading these fields are recommending these things, you know, one of the things I, I like to say is the goalpost, right? In our, in our professions, we get a goalpost at everything we do, every event we have, every scenario, every emergency, we have a goalpost. I don't get to move that goalpost, right? I have to either score or not, right? It's a very different level of accountability. If I don't score, someone else gets to run that ball, right? Like my my team leader or my captain or my squad might be like, hey, man, good shot. Didn't make it. Get in the back of the line. You know, we don't see that at these higher echelons, you know, and the and the. The justification for that is that it's a constantly evolving and shaping environment and new information is coming in. Well, of course, everything works like that, you know? So again, my biggest, uh, I would say gripe with all this is, you know, the fact that, you know, these, these people get to constantly be in these positions to make these decisions and get it wrong, you know, and, and the contradicting, um, information that gets put out. Um, is almost disinformation. You know, I have friends that say to me because of, you know, my background, they're like, hey, where do I get good information? I don't know anymore. You know, it's not easy. You really have to dig. Sometimes I'm 10, 15 pages into a Google search before I can find a, a bolt I'm looking for, you know, because I've had to go through eight pages of ads for bolts, you know, <laughs> seven of which are all Chinese. Well, especially with, with this, well, I think what's shown, what's been, kind of revealed to me this last year is actually sometimes the best information is to take a step back and look around yourself like forget what everyone's telling me the number of people have said oh i've heard florida is terrible like no <laughs> it's not yeah. it's yeah. absolutely fine here and yeah there are some people in icu right now that are suffering absolutely and there are people that are suffering from all you know other things as well and that's absolutely 100% real and this is another strain of a virus that is taking human lives but what i saw was this thing was surging everyone was being cautious kudos to them we had yeah. no idea once it started playing out and we realized it wasn't even close to as bad as what we were saying exactly instead of saying hey there's good news here's what's going on now it's still very dangerous, but it's not this. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna deregulate a little bit. Here's what we need to do. Here's how you can make yourself more resilient when you get it. It wasn't. It was like, oh, it's not the numbers now, not the deaths now. Now it's the numbers. And then now well, we have a vaccine, we'll calm your tits because this strain, 
the right. southeast Philadelphia region strain. Right. Has another- so much worse yeah. than all the other, you know. So it's just sure. it's this it's, it's this they try they got momentum at the beginning, and instead of just being honest and saying, "All right, here's where we are now," which is great news, everyone. Now you can start getting happy and more optimistic. I feel like, and I'm not left, right, whatever. I'm just a person trying to get on with my life. That there has absolutely been a a, a a crowbar being used to manipulate people in general. Whatever wherever the reason it's coming from, people are being manipulated now. Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> the, the interesting thing is that, you know, here's a test. Here's a testament I, in my eyes to Americanism. You know, the American people let the government say, shut up and stay in your house for three months. And we did it. You know, and there's a lot of guys that are, you know, that are like, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. Hey, here's the deal, man. We were told that it needed to be done. And as a country, we did it. I'm proud of that, man. You know, I wish more people were. But I agree. Once the information came in and once we realized what was the actual threat um, and the severity of it, you know, that information should have been translated much faster, much, you know, much more accurately, I think. And moreover, should have been um, responded to in a, in a more logical manager, manner. You know, everything is so emotional nowadays. And, um, you know, you don't, you don't, you can't argue emotion, um, or I'm sorry, you can't argue logic with an emotional person, you know, um, that's very difficult to do. And I'm the problem that I have with it really is that the information came out there, the goalposts kept moving and it just was double down, double down, double down, double down. You know, I would have had a lot more respect for a lot of these elected officials and and representatives of government organizations who CDC, you know, you can go through all those organizations. You know, there was a lot of hard stuff to track and misinformation on those. Um, And they're the standard. So, you know, I think that the the reality of it is that they they being the health organizations of the world or the NHI or whoever you're you know talking about. That's the they that are in charge of saying, hey, yes, lock down the entire country. Um, once the orig- the initial assessments were made, um, should have been a little more honest, I think, you know, because I live around some of these places, they say we're overwhelmed. And, you know, I, I have family members that are involved in, in, in health care and the medical system, whether nurses or whatever. And they weren't seeing it. You know, so you're seeing national news. It says one thing and then you're finding out it's the nurses in their cars driving through when the news crews come by, you know. So it's like, hey, that could have been communicated much more effectively. I think as Americans, I know I would have been much more appreciative if they were like, all right, listen, here's a deal. Not as bad as we thought. Kids aren't effective. Let's rev schools back up. Let's, you know, they tried to do it in this. Uh, iterative manner without any kind of basis of of logic you know they're they're forcing people closed in certain places and then letting other people open and you know the governor's shutting states down but 10 of his buddies can go have dinner and it's not you know not an issue and it's 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 that you know laws for thee not for me you know and, and again we back it up james it boils down to information which is why i appreciate you guys and what you're doing because i'm not a health guy you know and in the first responder community um, you know, getting into these um, self-care methods, man, have, just have been life-changing, you know. And, and then I got involved in it professionally and realized, you know, that this is something that guys like you 
deal with literally every day, you know, and it's, it's been probably one of the toughest internal struggles I've ever gone through, but also one of the most rewarding. Beautiful. Well, speaking of that, then, so let's go down your career path. So you were, you know, hanging out in the skateboard crew and, um, mm-hmm. a you know, graffiti artist. Mm-hmm. What was your burning desire as far as career wise? Was it to do that professionally or did you have something else on the horizon? You know, most of my, um, family members were military. Like I said, my grandfather's on my, um, mother and father's side, my grandfather on my dad's side had nine other, there was nine of them out of 11 that went, uh, to world war II. uh, my uncles. Um, so I wanted to be a military guy, you know, more than anything. Uh, I had two cousins that I grew up with. We were super tight and, uh, they both went off into the Marine Corps. Um, when I, uh, my, uh, high school, I, I ended up getting a GED. Like I said, I, I fought a lot and, um, I ended up getting kicked out uh, in my senior year for getting in a fight. Um, so I went and got a GED and, uh, that was my plan. I was going to go join the Marines. Um, and the Marines wouldn't take me cause I had a GED and not a diploma. Um, really? Yeah, completely, man. So I think it was like 1997. Um, yeah, but yeah, I couldn't get in, man. I tried over the course of the next two or three years talking to recruiters. Um, I, they just wouldn't take me, couldn't get, couldn't make it happen. Um, so that threw a massive monkey wrench in my plans and, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, I knew that I wasn't going to be a professional skateboarder because a, I wasn't good enough. Um, and B, uh, it, I just didn't, it wasn't my kind of lifestyle. You know, I, I, you know, all my buddies would hop in bands and go to California and live on the street for months at a time. And, you know, I, I never, I never looked for that. Um, so, you know, from there I bounced around, man, you know, I basically got a bunch of little small menial jobs and then probably in my early twenties decided that I could use these menial jobs to learn you know, skills. So then I started kind of cherry picking jobs that, uh, I could do things like work with the public. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm sure you're, you're familiar with Wawa, um, which is a convenience store out here. Uh, I worked there for a year and a half just because I was very socially, uh, anxious. You know, I didn't like being in big crowds of people, you know, cause like I said, I was always in a little group of, of my buddies, you know, we were very insulated and, uh, I realized that I was awkward in conversations and, uh, I worked a a couple of different places that were public facing where I worked in, you know, kind of daily interaction, customer service jobs. Um, and I really just learned how to talk to people. And then that became, you know, uh, a little game I used to play with myself is if I can make, you know, angry people smile, you know, there was people that used to come in every day, miserable. And I'd be like, Hey, one day I'm going to, I'm going to make you laugh, you know? And so I, I used to play little games that were a little, really nowadays known as the term of social engineering games. Um, but it was, it was a way that I, uh, I was able to kind of sort my own emotions out by being able to, you know, read and make other people respond to me. Um, so once I learned how to do that, I moved into a couple of different positions. Um, you know, I, I worked for a large beverage distribution company, um, and I ran one of their warehouses and production facilities as a floor supervisor, um, which was an absolutely hostile environment. 
Um, it was a union shop. So I, I actually had one of the guys hit me with a forklift and put me in traction for like three months. Um, so that was my kind of really painful entry into corporate America and the quote unquote, you know, baseline hard, you know, neck workforce. And, you know, my dad was a teamster. You know, so I was used to growing up with truck drivers and unions and, you know, we, you know, we hung out. Those guys used to have meetings over our house. So I had just never known the ugly, dirty politics of, you know, uh, of things like the shop steward, you know, telling me go fuck myself every time he sees me having never said hello to me, you know, like the first day I meet him. So that hostile work environment um, taught me a bunch, you know, the First and foremost thing being, I hated it and didn't want to be a part of it. Uh, but I did it for years and learned to, you know, manipulate that environment. And I got an opportunity to work for a software company that was looking for a firearms person. And uh, it was a friend of a friend, a mutual thing. And it was a British uh, owned company that was based in the U.S. And uh, I responded and went in and they, they talked to me about my weapons knowledge. And, uh, you know, I remember being a kid with my grandfather and, you know, talking about guns and, you know, he had a 45 and nine old 1911, um, that, you know, we used to shoot in his backyard. So I was always interested in guns, you know, um, machinery, machinery, really, you know, cars, um, bows, compound bows, like anything that was like a machine I was obsessed with at a very early age. Uh, I used to take stuff apart and put it back together. So, um, you know, as I, uh, decided that the, you know, kind of corporate, um, management life wasn't something I wanted to be a part of, um, I got an opportunity to, I mean, it was making nothing. I think I was making like 23 grand a year starting. Um, but basically I had, no, I had a little office. It was a box and I used to sit there and I would go on open source and they put me in front of a database and I would just put information in. So they would say, okay, here's a firearms database. Here are the fields that we have in it. What do we need? Okay, make, model, manufacturer, caliber, markings, head stamp, blah, 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 right? Like we go through this whole line of stuff. And then I populate it. I find a couple of images. I verify that those are the right images. And I, I put it in. So I did this to the tunes of uh, a tune of thousands of records right over the course of several months. Um, and then they started having other needs where they wanted uh, weird stuff like batteries. You know, we, we want a database of every battery on the planet. OK, um, you know, uh, egg timers, um, certain types of wire. Right. Weird stuff, man. Like, you know, and fertilizer, diesel. Yeah. <laughs> but I was a kid, man. I was like, you know, I was in my 20s. I didn't know. I didn't know that that was all bomb shit. I didn't know it was government stuff. I thought they were a manufacturer database company. Like, that's what they were sold as. Nothing in the company had any tactical this, that. There was no dudes in, you know, you, you know, pictures in the office of guys with plaques, nothing, you know, it was just, it was a bunch of corporate guys, you know, very European. So, um, I had an opportunity to go over to the UK and work with the staff over there. And they basically walked me into the ministry of defense. And, uh, that was when, that was like the first day we're standing out in new, out front of new Scotland yard. And, uh, I meet up with the guy I'm, I'm supposed to be meeting that I work with. 
And, you know, obviously I worked in the U.S. and he worked in the U.K., so we knew each other, but had never, you know, hung out or met. And uh, here we go. You know, we're walking into NSY and, uh, you know, transferring counterterrorism database between the Ministry of Defense and their special operations branches. So that was pretty badass. You know, I was like, okay, this makes sense. Like, so I really, at that point, once I had the opportunity to um, kind of come behind, like poke my head behind the veil, because they had, they had other services within the company that they did too, that were non, um, you know, intelligence management based stuff. Um, but I really just kind of ran with it. Um, I ended up running their testing division, uh, spent a bunch of time with the foreign commission office over there. And, uh, we were in like 22 different nations at the time, Singapore, Hong Kong, and it was basically a counter IED database that initially was started to allow the MOD and DOD to share information. And uh, the, the guy that started the company was a former uh, British customs officer, an FCO guy. And, uh, you know, he was a firm believer in the fact that when the older, uh, older guys passed away, that their knowledge went with them. So the database was really a way to preserve guys' knowledge. And uh, I really bought into that. I thought it was a great idea. So uh, I got a ton of accolades for that. You know, people came back to me. Where did all this firearms data come from? You know, and they would point to me. That's the guy. And they were like, you put this in here. I had South America uh, ATF we worked with sending, you know, they'd find crazy hacked together pieces of firearms because, uh, you know, down in South America, they'll hijack parts and, and build them together. So we do IDs and traces on stuff like that. So it was awesome. You know, it really um, drove my career into some, into a direction I never thought it would go. Um, so again, you know, I'm, I'm very motivated, very personally driven. So uh, I ended up with a real nice corner office and running our testing division and, you know, developing 3d scanning back in 2006, you know, um, working with, uh, GPS and surveillance units where we could take a handheld device into Rockefeller center and track people uh, in near real time, you know, three to three to ten second delays. So that really was like super exciting for me, and uh, I decided to stick with that until about 2000 and I think 10. They basically sold the company and didn't tell anybody. So they had a couple of other divisions they were looking at standing up, and and they had a security division. Um, because they had some of our security guys who had some issues. Um, so they allowed me to start picking some training. Uh, so like I said, from 2008 to 10, I did that. And then 2010, they got rid of, of the company, basically liquidated it, sent us all severance packages and we're like, Hey, have a nice life. So at the time I had just had my son and, um, I didn't have a job. So uh, my, my, well, yeah, my wife at the time and, and I lived in a one bedroom condo and, uh, you know, I basically had nothing, um, working little odd jobs, trying to find something that, that I could do, uh, that I liked, uh, fire service, police service went for both of them. Just didn't really, you know, I walked into the politics in the room before I ever got an opportunity to talk to anybody. And it was just like, yeah, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm just not interested in that anymore. So, uh, my wife is Filipino, so my son is obviously half Filipino, and 
I know nothing about Filipino martial arts. And uh, that was a big part of my development as a kid, skateboarding and martial arts. Um, so I decided to look for a martial arts system. So I did, and I reached out to an organization that is a, a Kali stick fighting system. Um, and it just ended up being, you know, literally the uh, Wizard of Oz. So it was a bunch of guys that trained in a garage that beat the living shit out of each other. Uh, but in my experience, they had a very formulaic approach to things uh, where I had never seen anything like it. So I immediately became hooked. We started training twice a week, bunch of different guys, bunch of different backgrounds. You'd come in one day that, you know, there's, there's a guy in there who's an air marshal. There's a guy in there who's Homeland Security Investigations. There's a guy in there that's a plumber. You know, it was just a tight knit group of guys that trusted each other and, you know, were serious about learning how to fight. So after about three years, I went through a vetting period and found out that they had a, a branch of their uh, organization that's trained special operations in knife fighting and edge edge weapons, really counter counter and, and edge weapons uh, kind of stuff. So uh, I got into that group, um, ran contracting for them because I had a contracting background from working at the Intel company. Um, you know, I was familiar with uh, big corporations like Booze and Trip and, and you know, all the big contracting organizations. So um, I kind of stepped up and was like, hey, I'm familiar with this stuff. Um, I'll do it for you. So, again, for about eight years, um, I had the opportunity to work with uh, a bunch of guys and gals that did uh, training for uh, special operations, um, national level, um, you know, most of the soft units uh, and some other OGAs uh, developed some really great relationships with some amazing just guys in that in, in those industries, uh, everything from combat athlete programs to shooting instructors to combatives, you know. So it, it was just really um, a constant pool of growth for me. Um, there was always something to do, always something to learn, uh, always a way to better yourself. So I did that um, until 2015. And then I made the switch over for a couple years. I worked for, uh, as a gunsmith, uh, learned machining. And, and kind of, you know, that, that technical proficiency on, on how to actually make metal out of, make things out of metal. Um, and then moved over into fast. Eric, uh, is, is the owner and a, a great friend of mine. And, uh, he also was a guy that I had, uh, brought into the organization. Uh, you know, Eric has an amazing background, 40 plus years in martial arts, 25 years as a firefighter, 20 of that in their soft unit. Um, you know, he's a vet, just a great guy, you know, he's just one of my best friends. So, you know, there was an opportunity. Sometimes we'd have training contracts where they'd say, Hey, we need some capable dudes. So I'd give Eric a call cause he's a capable dude. So years later, um, now I work for him. Uh, we're taking his, uh, fast board and my job is that, uh, we're making a detachable shield system that complements it. So that now for law enforcement, first responders, whoever, CSAR units, uh, if we have to go into, um, you know, a collapse structure or less than ideal situation uh, under fire, we have a detachable ballistic protection option. You know, we're, we're doing blast blankets. We're doing stuff for breaching. Um, so it's pretty, pretty exciting. We're going to be popping that probably next month. You'll you know, you'll see that kind of hit the market here because we're just we're just leasing out uh, R&D right now. So. Um, I'm literally just buttoning up the reports now. We're going to get them submitted. 
And uh, that's where we're at. You know, uh, next month we're traveling pretty extensively going out and doing a bunch of state police organizations uh, where we're just going to get in there and show these guys. You know, I'm not a salesman. Uh, I believe in this thing um, because it works, you know. So that really uh, that really drives me. You know, I, I, I like the ability to um, be able to help people. I remember my my uncle was a, a firefighter in Camden when I was a kid. And on mischief night, they would go to put the fires out and get shot at, you know, and I was a kid when they were doing that, you know, it's just, it doesn't happen commonly unless you're in an area where it happens commonly, you know? So, um, I like stuff like that. I like, I like being able to develop products and training and and things that keep people safe, give them options, you know, because when you do what we do and, um, you know, you, you make that agreement with yourself where you say, my life is worth this. And you walk into that fire or whatever it is, you know, it's it's better. I'm I'm proud to have something you can hide behind and do your job effectively. You know, like as goofy as that sounds, you know, I'm a big fan of offensive protection, you know. Yeah, no, that's amazing to hear. I mean, that the that's definitely a real threat. And we've had, you know, not just obviously lots of law enforcement you know, shot and killed, but we've had paramedics shot and killed on doorsteps right. and, you know, firefighters right. shot at. Um, but before we get to the to the board, I just want to go back for a second because I thought it was interesting when we talked, you know, before we started recording, um, why edge weapons were pertinent in, in that community. So with you having a background in, you know, fighting on the street and then also mixing that with some of the operators that have a strong background and maybe defensive tactics and obviously the firearms training, what was that kind of um, middle of the Venn diagram where, you know, edge weapons was so um, effective for that community? And also what was kind of your perspective as a, as a civilian by that point? Yeah, sure. Um, well, just to clarify, you know, I did fight a lot, but most of that was getting my ass kicked, you know, so no tough guy shit. Um, you know, I was 180 pounds soaking wet most of my life. Um, and I didn't know how to fight. That's why I, I trained martial arts. Um, so as I got better at martial arts, I got my ass kicked less. Um, so that again, kind of became a foundation of, you know, drive and better in myself. Um, the system that I became a part of, um, was a thinking system. I, I, I initially got involved because I had never seen, uh, fighting broken down into such easily digestible formulas. And not only were they easily digestible, they made sense when they explained them. Well, why do I attack this point first? Because the guy's response will be this. Well, what does that do? It opens up this side. Oh, okay. Because that's going to cause his next response. Well, what is his next open line? You know, the low line. So there was a, there was a if then system that was quantifiable. You know, if he does this, do that. If he does this, do that. Then you learn hey, make him do this, and then you can just do that, right? So the, the foundations of the system, um, the PSYOC fighting system, is that it's always my turn. I don't wait. There's no defense. When you, when you say you're defending, um, you know, you're assuming you're losing. So, you know, if you choose to take uh, a defense, uh, you choose to lose. So, the PSYOC fighting system basically, and it's not the only one, there's a, a bunch of them that use it, is, or they call them beats in time. So if I choose to punch and you choose to block, your beat in time was a block. That was your defense, right? So they do a lot of things like um, stealing time, you know, uh, beats in time. 
half beat shots. And you see it a lot in a screaming stick fighting. Um, so that was all very interesting to me, the timing of it, um, the ability to, um, control adrenaline and open up that funnel vision that happens. They had a very interesting, um, process that, that we, uh, went through and, uh, it was really a gut check, uh, you know, and it was, it was not for the faint of heart. You know, the joke was, uh, we, we, we train and lead by fear, sarcasm and negative reinforcement. So as long as you can get past those things, you have a shot, right? So as I learned that timing, um, and I learned that formulaic approach to things, uh, I also learned that the blade was, was just a tool, um, that the, the blade is what you could use to force people into responding, uh, into responding to things a certain way. Um, so when you start to see that, when you start to see that all of the fancy flashy movements are really just reading and cataloging other people's movements, it's amazing. You know, it really is a, uh, uh, it's a next level system. I've never seen anything like it. And I've studied a good amount. Now there's guys in the systems that have, you know, unbelievable martial arts backgrounds. You know, again, Tom Kyer, he's a two Han in the system. Harley Elmore, he's a two Han. Colin Ryan, he's a two Han. Um, you know, you can look the system up. I, I just really can't say enough good things about them. They, they really, as far as my progression as a martial artist, um, they really opened a lot of doors for me and, and allowed me to see things in a much clearer perspective um, in terms of, you know, protection and defense and, you know, uh, warrior class virtues. You know, everything is not smash and bang. Um, one of the most valuable things in their system is the concept of feeder receiver. So as a feeder, when we're training together. If I do a move and I don't show you what we're doing, then you're just receiving information. You never get to be any better. Now, as the feeder of information, if I show you how to block or parry that move, now you're leveling up, right? Now you're getting to see, oh, okay, this is how that response happens. So there's even in just how you train with people an assessment that you can use to see where that person's at. And it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, like I said, there's the system is, was built out of necessity through the lineage of the Sioc family. And if you go back, they were running security for the, you know, the governments out there almost forever, you know? So they became very uh, adept at things like family dynamics. How do you keep kids safe, you know, in, in horrifying events, um, you know, shootings and accidents and, you know, they, they develop these these processes for things uh, out of, again, necessity. There's blade protocol. You know, there's a way that we watch people when you look at a blade because you will tell me more about yourself looking at that blade, having just met you and handed you it, uh, than I could ever glean in a 20-minute conversation, right? Everyone has different, per, you know, personalities, and that blade is a symbol of power. It's a symbol of lethality. It's a symbol of capability. It's a symbol of knowledge, right? It's a symbol of tradition, but it's just a symbol, right? Really, it's us. It is I who choose to accept those concepts and explore them. And, you know, some guys will dive off the, you know, the diving board into that pool and that, that becomes their path, you know, just like the military or law enforcement or, um, but it, it was really an amazing, um, opportunity for me to learn about myself. And, you know, during that path, I just, I met, 
I used to say I'd, I'd go to the system every year. They have a gathering where they train. And I just I would meet such unbelievable people, man, like doctors and neuroscientists, you know, and again, plumbers and house painters. And it's like everyone you'd never know it, you know, like the the old adage, like speak to speak to everyone like they're the president, even if it's the garbage man, you know, that's how they are. You know, there's there's a, it's a very welcoming, open community, you know, for people willing to learn that aren't shit bags because they'll find you if you're in there to learn things to hurt people, you know. Brilliant. Well, with you having a unique group of people that actually use blades, because mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you could be an amazing, you know, at, at Carly, but at the end of the day, you're not out there slashing people on a daily basis. So it's hard to pressure test completely. What was some of the feedback from the members of the military that were actually using that out on the battlefield? Well, that was a, there was a there was a reason that they they brought us in to do that. Um, and it was because uh, it, it wasn't about those lethal techniques. It was about the reading and the understanding of things like violent demeanor. Um, it was things like learning how to read intent. Uh, it was things like forcing uh, someone swinging a blade into you to only have two options in the method that they do that, you know, and you can do that by control and positioning. So it really wasn't about, you know, what a blade did to, you know, like a body or anything like that. We never heard any of that. Um, we never got a lot of feedback. We didn't get specific details on anything. Um, you know, we were given a specific set of requirements of things that we were supposed to do for them. Uh, most of it was, you know, what we used to call human Bob dummies. You know, we would go into training facilities with them and they'd beat us up, you know, or they'd at least they'd have an opportunity to. Right. Because you got to understand when you're at that level, those guys train at a very high intensity. So when they hire contracted companies to supply things like role players, they're not people you can punch in the face. You know, they're not people that you can handcuff violently. Right. They're not people that will, you know, fight you when you try and detain them. So. That was why they brought us in was because all of our guys had solid combatives backgrounds. We were all SMEs for the government in one way or the other at some point in our careers. Um, and we were resilient, you know, that we could uh, we would tell them, you know, we'll match your intensity. So if you come in and blow a guy's nose apart, be prepared to get your nose blown apart, you know, and, and they understood that. Um, and there was a very high level of respect between us and and those guys because they appreciated that you know they're not in there to hurt you they're in there to make themselves better and the fact that they can if you know if that happens you're gonna spit a tooth out put your mask back on and get back up you know they respect that you know again it's it kind of leads back into that you know the old warrior ilk you know um the joke was we were the best at dying ever because we were the hardest to kill beautiful it's interesting as well them getting the yeah, more of the psychology for him than anything else. I had the uh, Hoist Gracie on the show, and he talked about studying striking. And he didn't study striking to be a striker. He studied it so he could, again, kind of reverse engineer how a striker moves. And so then he could, you know, use the jiu-jitsu that he had obviously mastered by that point against a striker. So it's interesting that by training the way that you do, you know, whether it's a police officer or a paramedic or whatever – you're looking at that patient, that that you know person that you're trying to arrest in a different lens than an average person would. Absolutely, and and you know I think that that was one of the biggest benefits that we brought to you know really any organization that we trained, whether it was military, law enforcement, or civilian. We would force people 
to getting the opposing force role. You know, you need to see what I see as the bad guy, right? So you're a police officer and, you know, you're training clearing of uh, a residential structure, right? And I'm hiding in a closet upstairs waiting for you to come in and I'm going to kick at you, right? Because we're going to see if you shoot me. So that cop is going to get a bunch of reps of going in there and, you know, being stressed out and maybe shooting, not shooting. But he's never going to get the feeling of that guy in the closet. And that's what he needs. You need to understand what that guy is thinking. So we put him in the closet and we go hunt him. And we tell him when you have the opportunity to strike, strike, because now with what you know and who you are, you have the best chance of beating yourself. Let's see if you can do it. And it's pretty simple, you know, and it's we again, I we were one of the first groups to bring people in and force them into that role. And I mean, we got tons of pushback, especially from, you know, some of the mill guys, because they were like, yeah, man, we don't do that. And it's like, OK. And then years later, they started to see the progression and they would come, you know, they would come back around. We'd have other courses with them and they'd be like, hey, let us give that a shot now. You know, we're kind of, you know, we're seeing where you come from with that. Um, but 90 percent of the time, you know, those guys understood that, you know, we were there to do what they needed us to do. You know, if that was, um, you know, getting full blown fistfights, we got in full blown fistfights, you know, but I've, I've stood in some of the training structures with a group of guys and talked for a half an hour to an hour about mindset. What is going on in your head when you're going in this building, you know, better yet, what's going on in the other eight guys heads that are behind you, you know? And that conversation, you'd be surprised in first responder communities, especially doesn't happen a lot. You know, what are you willing to do? What are you not willing to do? Because that's going to hugely impact the effectiveness of, uh, you know, of our group, given certain circumstances or scenarios. Yeah, this is I find that whole thing fascinating. I had a guy, Youssef Badu, who was a Marine. Um, he's originally from Kuwait. And uh, now one of the big kind of areas that he specializes in is uh, situational awareness. And so, again, we're not talking about running in with nunchucks. It's more about, you know, understanding, right. you know, who 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 is the, the real gray man and who's trying to be the gray man. You know what I mean? And uh, and getting that from, you know, law enforcement, getting it from a firefighter or a paramedic, you know, this you've just been on a shooting victim. Well, you know, is the shooter still around? You know, this this. uh you know, this this person is acting strangely. Is this a psych call? Is this someone who just murders someone around the corner? You know, I mean, we, we don't think about that. We just respond to the alarm. We pull out a stretcher or, you know, get off the fire engine. And we tend to be a little blinkered sometimes. So I think there's so much value in, in you know, not only the military, but the responder professions to 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 go down that situational awareness in a road think about every single medical patient you go on might have a knife in their pocket might have a gun in their you know in their back you know and uh and really start adding that because we always talk about um bsi scene safety it's the kind of beginning of our little acronyms but usually you know it's it's it's, it's lip service but when you actually think you know before i even step off Am I looking for, you know, a true what if? Have I really opened my eyes and, and my field of vision to survey the scene before mm -hmm. I commit myself or my crew to my, what might be a dead end? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, that that assessment is a big deal, you know, because <clears throat> that that's another thing that's, you know, when when we train, um, especially for lethal encounter training or any kind of, you know, armed confrontation, 
our avoidance, you know, de-escalation is, is what we teach. Um, and, and you, you typically nowadays see an escalation mindset and the old, you know, the old analogy that we used to use is, Hey, uh, don't reach for that. And the guy reaches for it and he goes, Hey, don't open that. And he, you know, he opens a glove box and he goes, Hey, don't touch that. And he opens his touch, you know, now the cops putting his hand on his gun. That's an escalation mindset, you know, and you're always behind the power curve. You know, you're always in a reactionary uh, response uh, structure. You, you, you know, you're not proactive. So if you start at an escalated state and you de-escalate, that becomes your default. Um, you know, it's a much it creates a much safer environment for really everyone, um, because if that person decides to whip that gun out and fire anyone who's been around indiscriminate gunfire knows it goes everywhere. You know, you can't you can't say where that round is going to go. You know, you could change the attitude of that gun a tenth of a thousandth of an inch and it changes where that bullet lands. So, you know, I'm a you know, I, I always I always looked at it in the regards of, you know, especially in my family, you know, understand the landscape, you know, understand the personalities and demeanor of people and the indicators, uh, but get out of there. You know, like we're not trying to prove anything, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I've, I've trained for years doing some cool stuff. There's guys way better at all of it than I am, but I'm not looking to use it. You know, I'm looking to better myself in a way that helps me better other people. You know, if something bad is going to happen, why not be the guy to end it? I'm okay with that because I have a high level of confidence in my ability to discriminate because I've trained it. And that's, I think, what is missing nowadays is that discrimination. You know, uh, policing is very ask, tell, make. Well, there's a lot between tell and make. You know, I mean, there's a tome of information between there. Yet we get these young cops, we send them out in the field and we tell them ask, tell, make. Right. So, you know, I'm a I'm a, a huge fan of, you know, being of a high level of capability uh, and a very low level of need. Yeah, well, that seems to be an, another common thread that comes out of a lot of the conversation, especially with men and women that are either in, you know, the military special operations and or law enforcement. Um, the the officers who are in good shape and, you know, coupled with that have a good physical ability when it comes to combat usually are the biggest deterrent. They're the ones that never have to, you know, go hands-on or rarely have to go hands-on because they look at this person, they can tell they're in shape. You can look in someone's eyes and know if they can fight or not. You know, if they're puffing their chest out and everything, you know they can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? So funny soft skills, right? Yeah, soft skills. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, and, and even uh, a friend of mine, Casey, she's uh, a female canine officer here in, in our area. And again, just, and with those soft skills. So she's like, you know, when, when that first interaction, you get to, ch to immediately decide if this is going to escalate or it's going to deescalate. Some, of course, you know, it's already at level red, whatever, but right, right. so many. And she pointed out, you know, great point. The last police interactions that person had might have been awful. One of my last interactions with law enforcement was terrible. Absolutely terrible. The person was a fucking idiot doesn't mean i'm gonna judge him but i tell you you know it, it definitely pissed me off for a while and i i got you know a different reaction looking at a local cop car than i normally got so you got to factor that in but when you step out that and you show that person look i'm one of the good ones and there's lots and lots of good ones let me be clear i'm one of them i, th I agree 100 percent. you are now 
setting yourself up for success versus you're that dickhead chewing gum, you know, thumbs tucked in your, tucked in your vest, sunglasses still over your eyes, mm-hmm. you know, talking down to someone. Where the fuck do you think that's going to go? That's going to escalate. Yeah. I, I think that verbal judo is a very underutilized skill, you know, uh, being able to verbally de-escalate situations, but at the same time realizing that some situations are not able to be de-escalated. Um, and again, that where that's where the capability and need comes in. You know, cops have a hard job nowadays. You know, I I wouldn't want some 19 year old kid rolling his window down with a you know Bob Marley cloud of smoke coming out in my face, telling me go fuck myself. You know, because he's got a medical marijuana card and he's doing 85 with you know a taillight out. Um, because of again, you know, whatever we can call it the religion issue, you know, like it's tough nowadays for these guys. You know, I, I really don't envy them and I give them a lot of credit, you know, but I'm a firm believer that, you know, every profession has its positives and negatives. You know, there's great Wawa employees and there's shitty ones. There's great postal, you know, mailmen and there's shitty ones. You know, you get that with every profession. Um I think that, again, you know, we kind of come back to that political climate where, you know, it's much more difficult now to police from within because of the division, you know. And uh, I think that, you know, again, we talk about things like American exceptionalism and people want to know when America was ever great. And, you know, uh, I don't uh, I just say, hey, go anywhere else. Go anywhere else. Pick your country. Go anywhere else and go live somewhere, you know. Don't go to the resorts in Cuba, you know, go where they make boats out of trash and send their kids across the ocean. Go look, go look at what that's like, you know, go look in Colombia and South America, you know, so understand that we're all flawed, you know, no system is perfect. Um, But, you know, in my opinion, having seen some of those places, you know, we're the best one out there, you know, you have the best opportunity here. Uh, You have, uh, you have absolute guarantee of opportunity. If you work for it, you just don't have guarantee of outcome. There is no equality of outcome, you know? And I think that the the conversation has shifted so much towards that, that that's why we're looking at over medicating people uh, that are rehabilitating as opposed to getting them into, you know, holistic stretching and, you know, things like uh, collagen and, you know, natural things that we can take to greatly increase our chances of health and success. Right. Yeah, I'm literally drinking collagen in my protein shake as we talk. So, <laughs> but it's funny because because you talk about that, I agree completely. We have two voices: America's shits full of full of racists and this that, or America's the best country in the world. Well, no and no. Firstly, it's not a competition, so there is no best country in the world. It's definitely not a shitty place full of racists. But it's also not the best if you're not prepared to fucking invest in it and do your part to make it great. And I hate to tell you, but there's other education systems on the planet that are better than ours. There's prison systems, there's drug policies. But what we can do as this big round sphere that we all inhabit is have the humility to learn from each other and elevate every single country at the same time. But that takes you shutting the fuck up and actually learning and, and, and talking to each other. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, that's inherently American. Right. <laughs> right. But that's the thing, you know, it's there, the American resilience is what has always been awesome to me. You know, like I said, my grandfathers were vets, you know, my, my, my father had a bunch of buddies that went to Vietnam and I used to, I used to listen to them talk about it. And, you know, as I got older, I, I did my research and understood what the battle of the bulge was. You know, I, I met wild Bill Garnier. Um, he was a South Philly native down here. And, uh, 
you know, things like that. You know, those guys, it's a different ilk. Wild Bill said, he said, in my day, you'd walk into a high school and you'd say, who wants to serve your country? He said, 98 out of 100 kids wouldn't hesitate. Nowadays, you get two and you're lucky, you know. And he said, that's just what we did. You, that's just what we did. You weren't you weren't any good if you didn't go serve the country. You know, you were you were you know, you were a coward. You were a yellow belly. You know, you didn't you didn't stand up for what you wanted to believe in or what you thought you believed in. You know, and there's no accountability anymore like there was, you know, that's 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 the unfortunate you know, reality of it. The accountability is that we are Americans and we hold ourselves accountable. Right. And and it, in my opinion, really breaks down to the verbiage. Right. You know, I mean, you can be anything you want. The thing that cracks me up is these people that talk about like, uh, you know, owner company ownership. Right. Like communist systems and you know, putting in, you know, proletariat work ownership. Hey, you can do that in this country. Go set up a company, hire a bunch of people and give them all ownership in the time and the property that they make. Go ahead. <laughs> you can do that. As a matter of fact, there's some companies out there that have done it and done it well. You know, stock options, you know, things like that. But, you know, the reality of it is you don't, the, <laughs> you know, people like to, you know, shoot the horse when the, you know, when the saddle's not on right. And it's like, listen, <laughs> take a minute and learn how to ride the horse before you tell me what's wrong with it. You know? Yeah. Well, you mentioned Bill. I use, I use the real man of easy company. I think Band of Brothers is one of the most incredible, um, you know, productions for so many reasons. I talk about it a lot with the mental health element that we have this facade like, oh, it doesn't bother me. Well, it bothers some of the most heroic men that ever served 60 right. years later when they're talking about it. So, yeah, yeah, you know, just you need to forget that. But what I also find interesting is, you know, we call them the greatest generation for a reason. And then you you look, and again, I'm, I'm tarring, you know, everyone with the same brush, but you look at the 50s. It was a very backward time in the U.S. We were, you know, still hanging people from trees and, you know, the woman was back in the kitchen. Like, how the hell do we go from, you know, be all you can be to, you know, to, to that? So, so I think in a way that generation was so amazing and they probably bent over backwards to make sure that the next generation didn't go through it, that that to, in a way, when you look back, might have been the beginning of leading us down to where we are. And we need to really look at pre-World War II. What made those men and women, as you said, to the point where they put their hand up in that classroom? Because I yeah. think we kind of fucked it up after for a bit. You know, I mean, not not everyone, but but that you know that that materialism and everything kind of went way too far on the other side. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the it's the it's the kind of you know I see it as. You know, I could have taken tons of drugs to get better. No, I could have. I could have. Uh, I could have lived on my couch in a, a constant state of stupor, because um, that would have been easy. Um, but I didn't want to do that because it wasn't worth it to me. So I went the hard route and I educated myself. And it was that thirst for knowledge, having experienced the alternative. Therein lies the rub, right? You know, you see it everywhere nowadays. Everyone's an expert having never stepped out of the fucking front door anymore. And and I understand that people have a lot of time invested in certain things and they've they've really done a lot. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people. Um, yet when I come into the first responder community, I don't I don't turn around and go, hey, you should do this. 
I don't say shit. I listen because those guys are the experts. I'm there to learn. I'm the student now, you know, and, and I'm really genuinely trying to absorb, you know, the greatness that these guys are, are showing me. Right. And, and allowing me to be a part of. And that's just a mindset thing. That's how I see it. That's why I surround myself with such amazing people, you know, because I, I strive to be in a community better than, you know, than I came from. Which is humility again. Right. Now, the other the other side of that is, you know, it's very easy to fall down, you know, these these holes where we we convince ourselves of things, you know, well, I need these to get by or, you know, I have to do this because, you know, do you I'll tell you a quick, quick story. I'm not, I'm not going to go off a tangent here, but when my my shoulder, I was having really bad issues with it and I had to get a couple of MRIs and I went to this, you know, holistic PT guy and I had this spot in there I couldn't even touch and he got in he got into my shoulder with his thumbs and touched parts of me that I didn't even know exist like I mean it was excruciating and I have a pretty good pain tolerance right I never did it because I was concerned that there was something physiologically wrong with me I didn't want to make it worse this guy knew what he was doing got in there and showed me how to fix it so now I don't have that problem anymore and if I do I have a solution for it you know, that was something he was, that was that, that exchange of information, you know? And again, if I had gone in there and been like, whoa, don't touch it. Don't touch it, man. Like, you know, no, 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 no. I'm telling you, I don't, you know, I was, I, I was prepared. And, you know, when I came out of there, it had been like, okay, well, I'm going to need another MRI because this is not, <laughs> this is clearly worse now. Right. Like, but I trusted him and it ended up working. And, you know, sometimes that blind leap of faith into something that your mind is saying, this isn't right, this isn't right, this isn't right, is what we need. And, you know, I, I believe a lot of addiction works that way, you know, and, and you and I had a little bit of uh, a talk about that when we first uh, spoke. And it's, we convince ourselves of such great weakness that if we chose to convince ourselves of such great strength, why is it any different? Well, because it takes effort. You know, and, and, and that's, that's kind of where I was at, where I was, I just didn't have the effort in me. You know, my back was given out. I was locking up and I mean, I never had issues like that before. I literally four or five days, I couldn't move. And, you know, I, I thought I was going to be like, like that for the rest of my life, you know? And it was, it was very, very sobering to be like, wow, like I might not ever stand up straight again, you know? And then I just erased that from a possibility in my mind. And I just dealt with the pain and I damaged myself probably more than I needed before I started listening to people and, and, and ended up getting it fixed. But I realized that there was a necessity there for me to learn and, and be educated by people who know what they're doing and, and I trust, you know, but again, that's a process, you know, it's, it's not easy. Um, but it's definitely a gut check and a leap of faith, especially when you, when you're talking about mental health and, um, you know, the meds, uh, I just, they're, they're poison to me. I've, I've had so many of my good friends, um, you know, in different backgrounds, uh, broken backs and body parts. And, you know, they end up on these pills and it's like, you know, it, it changes them. It changes them. Their, their entire mindset, their focus, they just become dependent on it, you know, and it's, it's, it's terrible to see. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying there's no place for them. I'm just saying, again, I, I think we're vastly over medicated. I think that conversations like this and what you guys are doing, your podcasts are awesome, man. You know, like I really strive to listen to things that educate me and, and, you know, the, just the guys and gals you have on there, man, kudos to you because 
you know, this is how it starts. I, I tell people all the time, you know, the toughest, the toughest dude or woman, you know, uh, you know, whether she was an operator and, you know, quote unquote, killed more people than cancer, or, you know, <laughs> all deal with the same psychological stuff. We all have the same capacity. It's the backpack of rocks, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No. And I love that analogy with the shoulder. I think it's, it's, it's fantastic because that's to me, the shoulder pain is obesity in this country. The shoulder pain is addiction in this country. And the, you know, the, the adjustment in that case is going back to how we used to farm hundred years ago is reversing drug prohibition is, you know, I mean, just all these things that at the nucleus would fix everything, but we have to take a step back and go, I know, I know it's been drilled into you since you were born to eat this way, to move this way that, you know, addicts are scum, you know, homeless are bums or whatever, but just take a fucking step back and, and look at the source of where this all came from, adjust that source. And you could literally change the world. Well, that's, you know, and that's a great point because, you know, it really boils down to, um, you know, drive and effort, right? You know, are how bad do you want it? And, and that's, that's it. You know, the, the sad part about, you know, things like heroin uh, are, you know, people convince themselves they want it, but they don't, you know, and that's called addiction. <laughs> you know, it's, I'm convincing myself. I don't want this. I'm convincing myself. I don't want this. I'm, you want it the whole time. I'm convincing myself I don't want this, right? Like, you know, the whole Darren Brown, you know, NLP stuff, right? So you're 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 constantly reinforcing negatives, you know. And I think that's not looked at enough, you know. I, I think that people aren't held accountable to the to the self, you know, deprecating ideas and mental models that they build, you know. And the reason is because the only one that can hold you accountable to that is you. I don't know your demons. You don't know mine. You know, everyone, if you go far enough back in everyone's past, everyone has something they're not proud of. In my opinion, that's the past, right? It's where you are now that's important because that will tell whether or not you paid attention to those mistakes or not. You live a life where you're constantly doing the same thing over and over and over. You're not living a life. You know, you're not ever changing anything. You're not getting to experience anything new, you know, and that's to me, that's tragedy. You know, that 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 people's own worst enemy is themselves, you know, that we're so we're so willing to listen to the negative from people and, and you know, vie for likes and, you know, dopamine off social media that, you know, we don't take the time to build people up anymore. You know, I was just talking to my wife the other day. There's, you know, I, I always mess with kids out here. Right. Because they're they're super, super rambunctious. Right. These little kids just they just you know, they, they have a lot of undirected energy. And I, you know, I, one of my goals was always to set up a youth center in the hoods out here. You know, I, I used to live in West Philadelphia and it was really bad. And, you know, there was big open areas that were just empty, you know? And, and I thought, man, like, what if there was a whole building where you had computers and walls kids could paint on and trampolines and mat rooms and, you know, basketball courts and, that was open to the public that had a group of mem mem mentors, excuse me, that were retirees paid by the state that came in and they mentored kids. Like, you know, instead of them looking at the guy rolling up in the Land Rover wearing 70 grand worth of gear, you know, they don't have time to do that because they've got to be at gymnastics in an hour. It's just direction. You know, it's it's just how it works. Kids strive for discipline. They love it. 
you know, all my nieces and nephews, like they all love me and I'm the hardest one on them, you know, because I expect greatness of them. And I tell them that, you know, don't ever, you know, sorry. No, I was going to say, though, I, I, I agree 100 percent. And and again, when that that topic comes up again over and over again, I've, I've got, you know, a, a guy that started a um, nonprofit getting street kids in South Africa surfing. I got, you know, a a cop who started a boxing club in New York. I mean, you have these mentors that go, well, look, you know, yes, this is, again, this is where they end up, some of these kids. So let's go back to before they get to that point. Let's get them where in that age where they're looking for who is my role model going to be? Is it going to be this boxer who comes from a law enforcement background? Or is it going to be this shitbag, as you said, that's driving the the Range Rover and, you know, is probably going to get you killed before your 15th birthday? So the mentorship element is so important, especially in our professions. There are mentorship programs here. There's a great one where I live, started by some local firefighters, and they... Of all backs, you know, there's no barrier to entry. If you can show up to this training facility, they will get you ready for Fire Academy. There are scholarships for Fire Academy. There's a pipeline into the local departments here. So you can go from a house that was broken that maybe you only have one parent that no one seems to give a shit, be around a bunch of incredibly inspiring men and women that you develop an admiration for and find yourself in a profession doing good in the world. It's, It's that simple. I agree a hundred percent. You know, it's, it's so funny because, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, old vocational schools, you know, and, and, you know, when I was in, when I was in high school, the kids that went to Vokey were the bad kids, you know, they were, you know, they were the problem children. Guess what? They're all like six figure plumbers, welders, fabricators, like all those guys are like electricians now and own their own companies, you know? But we were sold this bill that we needed to go to, you know, college and and get a degree and do this and do that. And I, you know, I tried that for a little while, but you know, it just they didn't they didn't push me the way I needed to be pushed. And I think that I think that that's the biggest thing is time and access. You know, when you talk about mentorship, you know, if 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 as a kid you knew what you know now about how valuable your time and access is, would you have changed who you studied under? You know, would you have changed the direction that you go? You know, what would you have kept the same? And that that's kind of the model I strive for. You know, I don't I don't look to assign blame. I don't carry a lot of hate. I used to and anger. Um, but you and I talked about this accident really has opened my eyes to time and access, you know, and and that's that's the reality of it. You know, if you if you could look back and say, um, you know, hey, maybe you should do this. Maybe you shouldn't do that. You know, your life wouldn't be what it is now. You wouldn't be who you are. And that's the thing. If you like yourself at this point, you know, you're probably doing something right. If you don't, you probably need to go back and look at some of that, you know, because I I think that works in everything. You know, it it really does. It works in, you know, when you look at, you know, I, I always tell my, I always tell myself with my kids, you know, look at the things that happened to you growing up. How close do your kids have to get to those? That scared the hell out of me when I became a dad. Does my kid have to have a gun put in his face at 12 years old to learn the lessons I've learned in life? The answer is no, because he's 12 now, you know, so he made it without having to go through that. I get to talk to him about those experiences and what awareness is and what accountability and bad decisions cause and how the environments that I found myself and the peculiar circumstances were all created by me because I chose to be there. Accountability. Right. So I strive to take all those little pieces of my childhood, the good, the bad, and maintain the ones that were good and find the formulas where I can translate those lessons. But the bad, 
you know, really is where the learning is, you know? So I learned to contain those experiences and little events that I expose my kids to, as opposed to, you know, being 12 years old, running around at 1030 at night, you know? So that's the thing. It's, it's that constant adjustment and balance of where our horizons are. What's our goal? You know, what are we aiming at? And if it changes, you know, most, like I said, most people shoot the horse, you know, and it's like, hey, you could just turn the saddle around or learn to ride, you know, without one, you know, because they're both options. But now you're walking and <laughs> carrying a horse, <laughs> <laughs> horse, right? Brilliant. Well, I mean, I, that's why I love these conversations. I had no idea where it was going to go today. As we mentioned, you know, some people come on the show, they've written books and they're all over the Internet. And some people, for very good reason, are you know, kind of a closed book. So, you know, it's been a, a great conversation. I want to make sure that we spend some time on um, fast systems, though. So tell me about, um, you know, the genesis of that with, with Eric, and then, you know, let the listeners know kind of what the products are out there for the different um, professions. Yeah, sure. So Eric, uh, you know, in Philadelphia here for the firefighters, one of the unique uh, challenges that they have are basements. Um, they're very uh, shallow uh, stairwells. There's a 180 degree turn, usually against two walls at the bottom of them. So if a firefighter fully encumbered goes down in a basement, um, you know, it, it's not easy to get them out. You know, James, you, you know, this again, this is all new to me. So this was very eye opening for me. Um, when Eric first showed me the board, we went on the, the U.S. one of the boats. I think it's the USS New Jersey. Um, and they did lifts, you know, they, they pull guys out of, of bursts of the boat, you know, through the, through the ports and all. And, uh, you know, just seeing the effort it took to get a, a unconscious, you know, completely, um, limp firefighter in full gear up a flight of steps was insane. You know, it's, it's 12, you know, it's a 12 to 20 minute operation. Um, you know, maybe 10, if you got a bunch of guys that are studs, right. Um, but you know, in those super tight spaces, you can have all the muscle in the world. If you can't fit it in there, it doesn't do you any good. Right. So Eric developed a way to fit some muscle in there and it was the board. And, uh, you know, it's just very intuitively designed by a guy who's done it for years. So it's got a bunch of features like it tilts to a 45 degree angle to facilitate a 180 degree turn in almost any space, uh, down to 18 inches. Um, you know, very short and slow or, uh, very, uh, sorry, uh, short and compact turning radius, uh, the board's designed to follow the natural bends of the body at the pelvic girdle. Um, the hull and the lashing system are designed to come from the bottom of the board so that if you hit a like a bulkhead on a stairwell, uh, the lashing system will actually back the board up and, and defeat the bullnose. So, you know, again, we're not salesmen. You know, it just works. It sells itself. You know, we're taking national rescue times from 15 minutes down to under two. Wow. And, and yeah, and Eric and his guys have it in under a minute. Like if you get a bunch of dudes and there's you can once the community kind of, you know, has opened up and started talking, you know, you get guys going after it, you know, because this is the big deal. You have a you have a guy who's suddenly unresponsive, has a sudden cardiac event or something and goes limp. Um, how do you get him out? You know, and, and that's a real problem. So they they've solved that. Um and it's, it's just awesome. You know, it's, it's funny because I've been to some of the conferences, FDIC firehouse, you know, these are all new to me. And, uh, I watch these chiefs walk by and we do, you know, we do the demos and I'm kind of just a, you know, an observer there. Uh, and these chiefs will walk by and we'll do a package and the chief will just be like, you know, he just, he, oh yeah. Okay. 
Yep. All right. Yeah. What What do you do? Where did you, who are you guys? What are you doing? Cool. Yeah, we'll be in touch. And then we get back and there's already orders on the table. You know, so it's that intuitive. It just it's stupid simple. It's like caveman simple. So, you know, there's not a bunch of lashing. It's a one point connection system that, you know, goes from shoulder to, you know, like a crotch harness. Um, so you don't have to change orientation if you go from horizontal to vertical. Uh, it's just super intuitive. So, um, you know, they're doing, you know, they're doing amazing things with it. Uh, it's in a number of state police agencies, a uh, couple different countries. France is talking about making it a national system. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they're just kicking ass and taking names with it, man. You know, it's, it's just one of those things where I, simple and intuitive is the best way to put it. You know, with five minutes of instruction, most capable men or women can do it in less than a minute. It's just that simple, you know, it's, it's the easy button, literally. So, you know, that has led into when I first saw it, it you know, and you guys will see it if you hit the website, it kind of looks like a shield the way you know, it's got the horseshoe shape with the holes in it. So I had mentioned to Eric years ago, I said, you know, this would, this would make a great entry shield for law enforcement. So now pop forward a couple of years we're we're down the road of development on that. That'll probably be releasing mid to late next month. Uh, we got a number. We're just finishing up a bunch of ballistic te testing. So um, we are going to be offer a substantially increased rate of protection from what's commonly out there now doing some specialty stuff. Um, we're putting out a lot of information, again, education in the community as far as NIJ standards and capabilities outside of NRG NIJ standard. Um, you know, so we're really out there trying to educate people and just show them, you know, for law enforcement, one of the big deals out in Philadelphia here is I just saw a study the other day. I think 82 percent of people shot on the streets of Philadelphia are transported in a police car. Right. The cops out here do the scoop and run, they call it. So if a kid gets shot, they'll, you know, most of these cops are dads, you know, or, or parents. They'll, they'll literally throw the kid in the back of the car and race them to the hospital. They don't wait for the ambulances. Um, so the nice thing about this is if you get someone in a, in a house or a structure, you can get them out and that, that board will go right into the back seat, you know, so we're, we're facilitating those rapid extractions and that's really what it is. It's bam, guy goes down, you know, how long do we have? And, and what Eric and his guys have developed is five or die, you know, it takes about five minutes. Once a guy goes completely unconscious before he, he starts losing brain function and start having problems we can't fix. So we work in that window, that five minute window. Beautiful. Now with the, uh, the protection, I'm assuming there's, there's application then for, you know, a mass shooting or something for vi victim extrication. Yeah. Active shooter. That's a big one in active shooter, you know, because a lot of things, a lot of things, uh, you know, are tactics based, you know, and now that, you know, uh, DHS is allowing medics to move in stacks and we're allowed to come into the building and secure positions. That's a big deal. Cause now I have a skid that, you know, I can package multiple people on and I can run them. I mean, this thing runs like an ice skate in schools, you know, because of those super slick floors, right? There's eight wax on all of them. So, you know, you, you have almost no resistance. It's super fast. So, you know, for what we're doing for some of the TAC meds is telling them, Hey, listen, you know, your secondary TAC med unit can be a, you know, rapid extraction transport for any kind of, you know, patient stuff. And then we have a development process or, uh, deal right now where what we're doing is we're the next two versions of the board will have biometrics. So once I package a guy, 
I will be able to get a full biometric, uh, info, you know, information package off of him in real time as he's being moved. Oh, wow. So you're going to be able to take vitals from the actual board itself. Yep. Interesting. Now, what about, we have a thing called the Denver roll and it came obviously out of tragedy like so many of them do, but the large firefighter got, um, stuck the wrong side of a windowsill in a fire. And just as you mentioned, you know, an average human being without any gear is incredibly heavy when they're dead mm-hmm. weight. Yeah. Um, and so this particular, it was literally a maneuver was, was developed for, you know, a couple of firefighters to be able to get someone out the, out of the, that space. You talked about carrying them upstairs, which obviously is a big challenge, especially in basements, even though that's not something I've done a lot of in my career because California and Florida didn't, aren't known for their basements. Um, but, uh, what about that kind of thing? Like, you know, removing them out of a, a window. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the big deal. So the, the ladder was designed, or I'm sorry, the, the board was designed to fit inside the rails of a ground ladder. So I think the bottom dimension is like 11 inches. So if you have a ladder in a window, you can literally put it on there and skate them right out. Um, and the hall system is what allows you to control that uh, uh, rated descent. Um, for uh, another point is that once the guy's connected, say you put him on a ladder and he he dumps, right? The bo- he rotates and comes off. He's attached to the board. So you won't lose him from the packaging system, right? Like a, like a, like a backboard or something, right? The reason that we go vertically with the strapping system is for that. We can, if he's in a window, I can put him right out the window. If I want to run an MA, I can run an MA. You know, you guys are, you know, have eight more options than I even know about for that type of stuff. But if he is in that window, we would bring him in. We package him right there. What happens with that vertical attachment system is that because it's over his shoulder and he's packaged face down, which is, you know, and I'll get into that here in a second, um, there's no sag or compression on the chest, right? So if I ran a, a strap under his arms and I go to a vertical, you know, descent, his entire shoulder girdle comes up and all of that pressure comes up into his chest and neck, right? Now we're talking asphyxiation and breathing issues. So the way that we do it is we package them, we have them cross the arms, we have a specific method of packaging them so that once we roll them on the board, they are face down, arms crossed. And what that does is it gives a space for the chest and the mask to sit where it's actually protected. Okay, and it's also enough space for the regulator to still be in place. Exactly. And the other thing it does is it gives us uh, access to the the breathing ports on the back. Uh, It puts him bottle up so that the, the center of weight is more controllable. I can put a guy on the bottle and manage that weight a little better as opposed to it being under him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, those windows and, and the is that a Denver drill? Yes, Denver roll. Yeah. 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 So so that's that's the um, and again, I'm learning the, the verbiage here. So forgive me for my ignorance. Um, but that's the, uh, apparently, you know, from my understanding, I've seen them done quite a bit in training. Uh, like I said, just not the names of the drills uh, yet. Um, what they usually do is they will they will put the guy on the on the uh, the windowsill feet first and they'll lower him down and then literally right out the window. They'll drop him straight down to the ground. Beautiful. And there's you know, if you go to the website, there's all the training videos that we have are online on the website. You know, one of the things Eric says is uh, everything that you can do with the board is public information. Uh, because we don't want to pe- we don't want people to not know how to use it because they can't pay us to train them with it. Love it. And w- so where is that site? Where can they find that? 
Yeah, it's www.fastrescuesolutions.com. Brilliant. Well, we had a um, Marion County Fools um, had a mini conference here, and I think I've got the name right. Jeremy Mathis was that one of the guys? Yeah. Yes. So he was actually there. So I want to make sure I mention him. You know, I met him. He actually gave me a challenge coin, one of your challenge coins. Um, so thank you for that. But yeah, so I didn't get to see him present it. Sadly, I came for the second part. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I've seen the board, you know, firsthand though. I just haven't seen it used in a demonstration yet. But I mean, I've, I've heard it for a long time now. Obviously, I see the, the, you know, the, the firefighters attached to the project that are part of your, your tribe. Um, so yeah, I recommend everyone go to the website and check it out because as you said to me, there's things I've seen as a fireman and I've, I, I only did it for 14 years. I adore the profession, but, um, Sometimes we overcomplicated things like, oh, there's a firefighter down. You're going to tie all these things with your webbing. You know, we need simple. We're already scared. You know, we're already stressed. You can't see a damn thing. It's hot as hell. You know, the more, you know, elements there are to us, to a, a you know, um, a fine skill. The, the more chance there is a failure. So something that's very easy that we can just do repetition after repetition is going to be, you know, absolutely invaluable. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of what we strive for is, you know, to put things out that make sense. You know, uh, the, the shield system, you guys will see, uh, it's really nothing revolutionary other than, you know, the way we are attaching it to our board, you know, is, is kind of a novel concept. Um, but you know, it's just caveman simple. It works with all the current TTPs you have. You don't have to change anything. You know, this thing fits inside a Stokes so you don't even need room for it on the truck. You know, I mean, it will fit in currently configured apparatus. Right. So that's the thing. You know, we understand as trainers and coming from that background that, you know, unfortunately, most of the time training is liability driven. Right. You know, especially budget wise. So, you know, if you make it simple and intuitive where it works and, you know, more than that, it's actually effective and does what you claim it will. Um, it, it's it, it, the people who need to see it will get it, you know, and um I'm one of those guys that I, I, you can tell me till you're blue in the face, but until I get my hands on it, you know, I won't have, you know, an opinion about it. Um, and this was one of those things, you know, the concept of, you know, fully being fully encapsulated was crazy to me that you guys train and then do everything blind, you know, and, you know, being a tactile kind of guy, um, you know, I had the opportunity to do some packaging fully encapsulated and it was unbelievable how simple this thing was to use. And again, I'm not a firefighter, right? Never was, never claimed to be. Um, but I could immediately see the value in the ability to train someone like me who's completely unfamiliar and uneducated to be completely effective in a span of 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, in moving a person significantly larger than myself through an obstacle course, right? So, you know, that's, that's kind of the key, you know, um, I, I've, I've been consulting for years, you know, we, we do a bunch of stuff with my company. Um, and one of the things that, that we always put out is I don't know your mission. You know, you, you are on your goal, right? Like you're on your horizon. So until we have a conversation and we get on the same page, you know, I can't help you assess where you, you know, you should be right. Because we have to talk about where you are. And if people aren't willing to say, hey, we have a deficiency here that needs to be filled, if they're not willing to say, hey, shield work is vastly underutilized in law enforcement, or there's a better way to pull, you know, non-responsive, non-ambulatory people out of collapsed structures, you know, what you hear and you guys are familiar all the time is, oh, we're good. You know, we, we got a way to do that. We've been doing that for years. You know, that's 
to me, that's death. You know, that's that attitude, that mindset is what gets guys killed. You know, I've, I've been a shooting instructor for a number of years and I used to always tell people, be a sponge, listen to everything everyone teaches you and try it. But because it doesn't work for you doesn't mean it won't work for someone else. You know, I've I've taught other bits of information that are not viable for me to other people and made the light click for them. You know, so if I was so, you know, driven by ego where I was like, well, I'm not going to put that guy's info out there because it didn't work for me. You know, that other person would have never got the benefit from my knowledge, you know. And that's the other thing is attribute it. You know, hey, look, I got that from this guy. You should go take a class with him. Absolutely. I think I think there's areas where we really need to work on humility in the fire service. I mean, there's there's things that we do that are incredible. There's innovations that come in. There's some areas. I think mental health is a great example of where finally we are seeing a change and it's fantastic. Yeah. But then there's areas like, you know, the removing the carcinogens from our gear, even and people hate hearing this, but even our helmets, people love it. Oh, it's tradition. No, that's history. That's mm-hmm. not tradition. I say the Navy SEALs don't wear tin helmets for a reason. We evolve. So we could, you know, there's things that will make us even better. So just because you've used a backboard, a sked or whatever, doesn't mean, as you said, that this might not be a better piece of equipment. So constantly reevaluating, just like COVID. You yeah. know, last March, we thought it was one thing. Now, fast yeah. forward a year, it's a completely different animal. So have the humility to reevaluate, swallow your ego and do what's best. Yeah. And I get it. You know, it's tough because, you know, there's a lot of snake oil nowadays. Everybody, you know, with the advent of social media and the, you know, kind of free flow of information, um, it's tough, you know, because there's a lot of people that will that will sell you things that they're completely and emotionally convinced on. And, and, you know, I've done it to people. I had a guy who came to me with a product and I was like, listen, we're not I'm not interested. And he was like, why not? And I said, because it's fucking stupid. You know, you're fixing a problem no one has. You know, all due respect. I mean, this guy was invested in it. And, you know, I could have, I could have, you know, he had him hire me and helped him take it to market, but I didn't believe in it, you know? And I, I felt the, the most benefit I could be to him was be honest with him and tell him I'm not interested in doing that, you know? And he was a pretty well-known guy and there was a lot of pressure behind that I may have burnt some bridges on with people by not supporting him, but I'm not co-signing that because I don't believe in it. Like I said, you know, you're you're fixing problems that don't exist. So kudos to you for nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. I saw that even in my old department where the initially myself, I was working with their what was their dispatch chief who ended up getting fired, but we were trying to fix the issue of waking up an entire bunk room full of men and women for one vehicle's call. So we would have two rescues. Um, an engine and a chief as well. So they have these little tone systems if you've got an open bunk room where it's right next to your bed. And just that one tones, there's a little LED strip that just kind of goes into your eyes. After a while, the rest of the bunk room learns to sleep through it and gets you know a much better night's sleep. Well, he, he got fired, ego got in the way, and in the end, this salesman sold them this package where this big LED illuminates the whole room, there's tones. There's, so now not only is there an audible, audible that wakes him up, now all these LEDs are, are waking him up too. So again, you've just taken a really shitty situation and made it even fucking worse and got thousands of thousands of dollars for it. So I see that in the fire service all the time. 
again, you know, you got to keep it basic. You know, we need sleep. We need clean gear. If there's a more ergonomic helmet that you don't have to take off or falls off your head the moment you look up, maybe you should be open-minded and, and humble enough to go, maybe that's a better thing for us. Not my main point, but it's a great kind of example of when ego gets in the way of progress. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you brought up a valid point with it, with the fitness standard, you know, and that that's a great point. How about if the people who write the budget come and put this shit on and go drag this guy up these steps? Yeah, absolutely. You know, why, yeah. why don't you guys come do it? And they should be doing and, it anyway, because if you're right. a leader, you should be able to right. do it. Right. But then again, you know, it's, it's, it's a novel concept now to say that, hey, our leaders should be leading us, you know, and that's that's, again, a testament to the culture and, and the values and the morals and the acceptability of what we as, as the guys in the community pushing and driving it will accept, you know, I mean, and, and that's the thing, you know, I, we, I understand people wanting to help people and, 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 uh, you know, benefit the community, you know, but at, at some point we've got to be honest, you know, and, and at some point that honesty is going to sting someone and that person is going to have to deal with a sting, right? The question is where we go from there, right? Once we get past all the stings, is there a solution, you know, and are we willing to dig for that? You know, and, and that's that's what I liken it to with the, you know, with my rehab. You know, I mean, there were so many times that I was just done laying on my floor at four o'clock in the morning sweating. You know, I mean, I'm sure you guys have been there, right, with the back spasms and going out. And, you know, I would not accept that. It's just not how I will be. I'm not going to have my children looking at me like that. And, and like I said, you know, I look at my leadership the same way. The people that expect me to do things for them and to show them things, you're getting my all. And you're also getting a free reign to say whatever the fuck you want to me, because I will respond accordingly. You will always get brutal, brutal honesty. And, you know, a lot of people don't like that about me. They, you know, they, they tell me I'm abrasive. It's why I'm not on social media. It's why when you do a Google search, you don't find me, you know, because I don't put my myself out there ever, you know, and it's it's just been since this accident meeting Miguel and you and, you know, kind of realizing you know, taking a breath and stopping and looking back and going, damn, you did do that. You know, like shit, that's pretty good, man. You know, and I'm a firm believer that, you know, for especially mental health, you know, you have to talk about it. You know, I, I have events that have happened in my life that have caused me such trauma and I've packed it away into such a small little dark place in my mind that I was in a life threatening car accident and that was all that came back. And I had no idea it was there. And as soon as I looked at it and got rid of it and dealt with it, my entire life changed, you know, and then I started finding little residual pieces of that all through my actions and motions. So, again, you know, it just comes to, you know, how how what level of accountability do we hold each other and, and really ourselves to, you know, who are you? Who do you want to be and where do you want to go? Like you said, man, some people it's about the plane and the car and the model wife and, you know, the watch, you know, it's not about that for us. You know, it's about the next generation. And if we can make this safer for them, why not? Why not be able to limit the kids coming up into these services, getting cancers, you know, or dying in training of unnecessary shit, you know, or or overdosing and committing fucking suicide because they've got no one to talk to. I mean, that to me is the tragedy. You know, it's it's the community that supports the community. Same thing in America, you know, I mean, nothing is going to fix any community, insert whatever racial or religious demographic you want, but that community, you know, 
because you, you you're not you're not we're not infiltrators, you know, and that's 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 the reality of it. If we were infiltrators, we'd be at war, you know, and that's that's I don't I don't think we're there. I don't think we're anywhere near that. I think that people are starting to realize, you know, that they're in more control than they than they think. And that's that's what I love about what you guys do, James, man, empowering people with info. I really appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. Well, I mean, that's a great place to wrap up, but thank you. And I think that's that's just it. I love these conversations. I mean, neither of us had any idea it was going to go to these places before we sat down two hours ago. But yeah. it's, you know, educated and angry. I use that phrase all the time. Like, people need to to get the, the, the facts from the people who walk the walk. Like, I'm, you know, I we're... We're literally jack of all trades, master of none. So I don't think any firefighter can really put their hand on their heart and say, I am an expert in whatever, because we have to be, you know, try and get as good as we can with so many skills. But when right. you get someone that's just coached their whole life, there that, that's who I'm asking about coaching. You know, the special operations community, I'm asking about combat and hands-on and, you know, all these things. So bringing these, taking away the filters and bringing these amazing, you know, men and women to the audience that anyone on planet earth can access for free it, this is how we do it this is how we have these conversations this is how we educate people this is how we get rid of war, uh, fear this is how we get rid of wasted time with meetings and emails and you just get people to the source so uh, thank you so much for this conversation i, I want to transition to some closing questions if that's okay yeah sure i mean if i can just say one thing you know one of one of the one of the big things for me is, is getting out and talking to people, you know, that that's been tough for me, you know, and, and learning from guys like you and Miguel and, and the community and, and having that structure, you know, the opportunity to do it. I, I, again, thank you. I appreciate it. Now, well, like I said, it's a synchronistic relationship. Everyone wins, you know what I mean? Literally. Um, well, I'd love to get your thoughts on a few of these. So the first question is, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or completely different. I mean, one of my favorites is Virtues of War by Stephen Pressfield. Um, and it's just a, uh, you know, it's a Alexander the Great and his conquest. It's a historical fiction, but uh, it's just a great warrior mindset um, type of book. Uh, and uh, I would have to say the other one is uh, that I have on deck right now. It's downstairs as a martial arts one, but it's uh, probably less interesting than Virtues of War. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well, then what about uh, movies? Any movies you love? Yeah, man. Uh, it's, it's funny. This was a big thing for us, you know, within the group. Um, we had a dedicated movie night. There's so many good ones. Um, Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, is a really good one. Um, I like Kingdom of Heaven because it kind of shows the humanity between the Christian and Muslim, uh, you know, crisis back then uh, that that two men could still, you know, be human outside of all that. Um, one of my absolute favorites is Enemy Mine uh, with uh, Dennis Quaid and Lou Gossett Jr., um, which is a story of a astronaut that lay up crash lands on a planet with an alien and they get stranded together and have to become friends. And the, uh, the astronaut ends up going to the alien planet and presenting his best friend who passed away on the planet alien son to his own planet and singing his lineage to them. Um, so it's just a great thing on, you know, uh, just two completely different ideas and worlds coming together and being forced to tolerate and 
and live together and then end up loving each other. Um, and my one of my all time favorites is Princess Bride, you know, never go up against a Sicilian when death's on the line. <laughs> um, yeah, that's 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 pretty, pretty good standbys there. Brilliant. Well, I'd love to get, um, oh God, I'm blanking on his name. I just fell out of my head. The guy who plays the lead in Princess Bride. Harry. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. I would love to get him on because I actually did, when I did stunts, swordplay was kind of my, the one thing I was good at. I'm not good in the <laughs> air. I'm not a gymnast. I'm terrible. But, you know, that was kind of the martial arts and swordplay. And I think, uh, yeah, he would be awesome. I mean, he's had a hell of a career, but I mean. Inigo Montoya was my heart, man. That was my guy. <laughs> You keep saying that word. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, then, are there any documentaries that you love? Um, documentaries. Um, no, nah, not really. Um, nothing. Nothing comes to mind. Uh, yeah. Now, I'm not. I'm not a big media person. I don't watch a lot of TV or movies. You know. Um, the last. I mean, I used to watch a lot of. Uh, what was his name? Ross Kemp. Yes, the yeah, Ro- Ro- Ross Kemp had some some good ones. Um, the South American ones. He did one on uh, I think it was Colombia or Bolivia. That that was a really good one. That was phenomenal. Just on the gang culture and how they were, how they had their whole political system set up, and it was pretty cool. Brilliant. That works. Great, great answer. Yeah, I'm familiar with a couple of his episodes. Um, all right, next question: Is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Eric would be a great person to have on. Um, he's got a very uh, just amazing background. He's not a huge talker, though. Uh, yeah, but I mean, we're in Philadelphia out here. I could pick any of these guys. Um, you know, Jeremy Mathis is one of them. He is a phenomenal, phenomenal guy. I am a huge Jeremy Mathis fan. Um, yeah, uh, if you're looking for, you know, some of the mill guys, um, you know, J.D. Patinsky from Northern Red. Um, I, I started training with him. He was a He's a uh, really solid, uh, solid trainer. He does a lot of uh, police training. Um, hmm. You know, I have a, uh, I have a long list, man. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people uh, that I admire that would benefit from this. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of different areas of information. Um, I think Eric you know, would really benefit the best because he's been through, you know, a very political system being in Philly. Uh, he's been injured some, you know, a bunch of times. He's a, a very big, uh, martial artist and energy work person. So he's very big on, you know, natural healing and, and holistic methods. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I think for benefit for for you guys, yeah, you should, you should definitely have a chat with him. All right. Even if, fine. Yeah. Let's make it work. Perfect. Okay. All right. Well, then the last question, then, before we make sure people know where to find you or, or the company, um, what do you do to decompress these days? Oh, man, I dance with my five year old. It's the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you, for me, uh, Qigong, I got back into martial arts. So I get up in the mornings. I do a, a little Qigong workout. Uh, I recently had a tree fall on my property here. So um, I get another 20 minutes out there with a cup of coffee, swinging an ax most mornings. 
Um, you know, my uh, breathing, Wim Hof, doing a lot of the, um, you know, super saturation of oxygen through the system and, and meditation. Um, there's a guy named Dana Pandi. Uh, he's a uh, Hindi, um, but he's a, I'll send you his info. He's one of the gurus. Uh, he's awesome. But he has a really good uh, piece on awareness. And uh, I've been really focusing on his methods of awareness um, as quickly as I can. He basically says your awareness is a ball of light and you live in a universe of darkness. So whatever you push that ball of light towards as you explore is where your attention will go. And if you decide to make negative habits out of things, you will burn a path of light to those that's easy to find every time you look. So, you know, he talks about biasing your awareness. So uh, meditating, using his method for about another 20 minutes. I got about an hour, you know, I work out every morning. Um, and then to de that, that's really that I can almost 100 percent contribute to my decompression. You know, it's it's just dropped my amount of stress so much having that, you know, hour to two hours of focus every morning. And then, you know, all jokes aside, the kids, you know, it's they just drive everything I do, you know. Absolutely. Well, I can relate to that completely, the dancing. And I've even got videos that pop up on Facebook of me playing the piano <laughs> while my five-year-old sings and all that. It's just, oh, God. There is no humility in super dad moments. So. <laughs> None at all. But with the, I love that, um, that kind of uh, imagery of awareness as well, because as you said, there are so many people putting out, putting in so much effort towards things that are, are negative. You know, I mean, think about how much pure energy is put into arguing over politics, arguing over, you know, BLM versus, you know, blue lives or whatever it is. Well, imagine that same energy went towards nothing but positivity, nothing but helping others, nothing but self-care. And so I love that. I mean, that, that's a great way of looking at it. You know, you're in the darkness and choose which path you want to illuminate. I'll send you. It's really worth listening to. You should probably post it too because it's it's one of my favorite talks, you know. Brilliant. I think I've, is he is he actually a, like a, a monk monk? Is he a shaved head? And, yes. and yeah, yes. I think He's I want. Nice. Yes, I think I know exactly who you're talking about. So I'd love to see that. Thank you. Will do. All right. Well, then the last question. Then I know you're not out there much on on the internet. If you want to want to connect to you, which are the best places to? Or what's the best path to to reach you specifically? Yeah, my website is apexpredatorsystems.com. Uh, like I said, I run a consultancy, so. Uh, it's basically a direct link to me and my guys, uh, which is, you know, whoever I need for certain projects, right? I have a, I have a pretty good network of people that I reach out to. Um, right now we're doing an engineering project for a lock smithing company, uh, where we're designing a, a jig for them for a specific type of insulation and a locking system for basically for school security. Um, so yeah, I mean, for that to, you know, shooting lessons, um, you know, I, I still train people to shoot in my off time, um, when I have time. Uh, but I'm actually thinking about next year, putting some classes together. Um, so yeah, apexpredatorsystems.com is, is mine. And then for fast, uh, for anything related to the R and D on that or the shield project or, you know, anything for, for, uh, the first responder community, it's, uh, jason.wolf and that's W O L F E at fastrescuesolutions.com. 
Brilliant. Well, Jason, I wanted to say thank you. We've been chatting for two hours. It's gone all over the place, which is my favorite kind of conversation. Um, like I said, there's people out there that have amazing life stories and it's in books and, you know, that is worth following. And there's sometimes I go, I look at my, my notes and it's almost completely empty. I'm like, all right, well, let's, <laughs> let's see where this goes. So I love yeah. these conversations. So thank you so much just, you know, for coming on the show. Thank you to uh, Miguel for connecting us and thank you for being so generous with your time today. I appreciate you guys. Look forward to talking to you more. Thanks, James.